Today we are continuing our series called 50 Days with Jesus, and we have over the last five weeks been diving into the, just a, this picture and this portrait of the personality of Jesus, the things that were close to his heart, the way that he spoke to people, the, the ways that he saw the world differently than the, the way the culture saw it in that day. And we're continuing into this series, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 today. And so we're going to start our reading today at verse 33 in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 36. And we'll project these words up on the screen as I read them. And, and they came to, to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, now Jesus does a cool little picture. He kidnaps someone's child out of the crowd just momentarily. It's like, Jesus just took my kid. All right, I guess that's going to be okay. Brings him over and uses him to help paint a picture. And, and the fact is that children, in reality, they're not really great at stuff. I mean, I would never want to see, like, a four-year-old with a chainsaw. Like, not really useful when clearing down wood. Like, you wouldn't stick a young child behind, you know, the, the wheel of a tractor and say, okay, do, work this field. You, you wouldn't sit a, a young child down with your tax return and say, oh, just go ahead and e-file that for me. It'll be fine, whatever you do. Children, they're not really capable of these things, and we understand that. But in this day especially, children weren't looked at with the starry eyes that we get. They were looked at as a liability, someone you had to constantly watch, make sure they're not poisoning themselves, making sure they're not getting hurt until they get to the age where they can really contribute. And so children were really, you know, to be seen and not heard in this point. And so as he begins to, you know, compare and use this picture of a child, we have to make sure that we see it with that understanding. And, and children, you know, they're, they're, they're funny when they try to do things like April Fool's Day was this last week, and I don't know if you have kids or if you have ornery enough kids where they try to pull pranks, but my four children definitely fit that description. And, and like I said, children, they're not really great at the things that they think they're doing yet, and so you know what it's like to have some kids plotting to do something like to get dad. And so they're, they're, you know, hey, let's go talk in my room. And, and, they, and they go, and they're like a couple feet away, and I can hear what they're saying, and they're plotting about what they're going to do. We're, we're going to tell Dad we're going to put on a gymnastic show in the lawn and get him to come outside, and we're going to spray him with a hose. And, and, and I hear all this happening, and, and my, one of my daughters, you know, she's not really good at this whole thing yet. And so she's like, hey, hey Dad, just so you know, we're, we're not going to play a prank on you because if we were going to play a prank on you, I'd tell you. <laughs> like, that's really good to know. Thank, thanks. And, and, and they're plotting this. And, you know, they, they'd already done one prank. They'd all pranked their older sister earlier today. And so now the three of them are going to prank me. And so here's the plan. Ella's going to have the hose outside. The younger two are going to come and get me, tell me it's time for the show. I'll come out the front door and they'll spray me with the hose. Really good plan. And so the youngest two come and, they bring, and they're bringing me outside. And as soon as they step out to the door, what they didn't realize is that dad and the oldest child had already made some plans. 
So as soon as those two step outside, I said April Fools locked the door and they got hosed down. That's right. Don't mess with dad. Dad is always a step ahead of his kids, all right? Uh, they, they, they weren't really, you know, sure. They, they, they thought their plan was going to work out, and they thought they knew what they were doing. But once again, you know, kids, they're, they're just not up to that level yet. And, and to be told to, to plan like a kid, to be used by God like a kid, to, to come to him like a child, these are all things that we hear, and we see this through this kind of starry-eyed of like, you know, like a kid on Christmas morning. But, but that's not really the heart be, behind what's happening. So some really challenging thoughts behind this passage that I, I want to go through. And, and the first thing that I want to just kind of see is, as we work through this passage together is that when Jesus got there, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? And he, you know, sent them that message and he got the read receipt, but nobody was saying anything. He, he asked the question and it was just silence, like, we know that we wanted to talk about this with each other, but we didn't really want you to hear what was going on. Like, we're, we're making plans and we're having conversations, but we don't really want you on and in the, this conversation because they knew that what they were talking about, it, it wasn't really the way that Jesus saw, saw the situation. It's, it's unfortunate when a conversation that you're having gets overheard by someone else that you didn't really want to overhear it, isn't it? I mean, you've probably been in the circumstances or you've had it happen where you're like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And silence. And, and, and there's that, that thing of, okay, well, let, let's work through this. Let's talk through this. And in this situation, he, he, he begins and he calls and he says, you know, let's sit down and talk about it. But I, I want to tell you that if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably had these times where it's like, you know, there, there's these conversations that you should be having with God that you're not. And, and the longer that it goes on, you can probably pinpoint a few times where it's like you felt a push from God like, hey, I want to talk to you about this. I want to see some change in this area. And a lot of times we, we say, oh, well, I'm not ready to talk about that. And so we just, we stay silent. We don't respond to what he's speaking to our heart. We think that maybe if I ignore this, this will just go away but the fact is that when we, when we ignore these conversations that we should be having, when we allow things to stay buried, that's always the recipe for self-destruction. So it's like, you know, I think I'm going to just continue to try to dig myself out of this hole. You know, I think it might be getting better the deeper that I go, and I'm just going to put this conversation off for a little while longer. And, and then maybe if it gets bad enough, then I'll, I'll reach out to that ladder that you're offering me, God. There's a truth that in our spiritual walks with God, that if, someone, if you've been walking with God for a little while, I'll guarantee you, and I can guarantee you this because it's just been so true in my experience, and in people who've mentored me, people I've looked up to, they could always kind of say, yeah, this is where God's working on my heart right now. And this isn't a sign of weakness. I want to tell you that this is a sign of strength. That when your walk with God is in a position where, where you can identify, yes, he's been talking to me, and I know that this is where he's refining me, that's not a sign of immaturity, and if you're new to your faith and you're kind of feeling like, man, I feel like I should have it all together by, by now. I've been a Christian for like six months. I should be fixed. I shouldn't have struggles. I shouldn't get upset like that anymore. I should have my finances under control. I should have my marriage under control. I've been with God for like six whole months, a year, six whole years, 20 years. I should have this figured out. I shouldn't have this thing that I know that God is trying to work on my heart in. 
And I'm going to tell you, until you stand face to face with him in glory, you're going to feel that hand of refinement in your life. But the thing that we don't want to do is just remain in silence when he asks us a question. Because that, that struggle that you have, that you think there's just this part of you that thinks maybe God doesn't know that I'm, I'm dealing with this. Jesus hears that struggle. Jesus hears that conversation that's going on in your head and your heart. He's aware of it. And, and this, is, this is the first point. This is the first thing that I would encourage you on today. That whatever struggle you're in the middle of, Jesus is already aware of it. He hears the conversation you've been having. He hears the thing that you've been walking through, and he knows about it. And I'm going to tell you, in his grace and, it, grace and in his patience, there will come a point that in that struggle, he's going, to, he's going to ask you, hey, will you sit down and talk with me about this? Will you start to walk this through now? And I want to encourage you not to just stay in silence, but to, to open up, to deal with it. And I mean, this, you know, th this couldn't be more real for me in what I'm walking through. And last week I shared with those of you guys who were here um, that my father passed away last Saturday. And we had the memorial service for him yesterday. And I mean, it was, it was, it was difficult. I was emotionally just exhausted all week. And I could have tried to just bottle that up and say, you know what, I'll just be strong now and I'll deal with it later. But that's not God's design. The emotions that he puts inside of us to be felt in days like this are meant to be expressed as part of the healing process. Yesterday, we got our ugly cry on, and we told stories, and we laughed, and we cried, and we worked through it. And we're still working through it. And, and it's hard, because I didn't have the relationship I wanted with my dad. And so it's going to be a process. But what is it right now that that God's working on your heart about? Can you name it? Have you heard his voice about the struggle that you're walking through? Maybe you haven't been ready to talk about it, but maybe he's starting to, to push on you about that today. God has this way uh, of doing things, and he has this instruction that he speaks to us, and Jesus it just has this way of kind of saying, okay, it's time to sit down. It's time for you know, my way and your way to converge, and the thing is, my way doesn't really change, and so it's time for your way to fall in line with what I'm asking you to do. And, and in this situation, the, the issue was they were talking about who was going to be greatest, and they were arguing about it, and the context kind of points towards the fact that they're arguing about, like, who's going to be closest to Jesus in heaven, who is going to be elevated above the others because they did better things, who has the strongest faith, and who, who's above the other person. And it's interesting because as he begins to sit them down, he calls them together. And, and the first thing that I want to point out to you is that he doesn't correct the desire in their heart to be great. Like, if you look at it, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, I don't want you to be great. Like, that's not what he does. But what he does is he begins to redefine what greatness is supposed to be. Because the fact is, the problem in the church and the problem in the world isn't that Christians are, aren't ambitious enough. In fact, I'd say we're not nearly as ambitious as we should be. We should have a drive and a desire to do amazing, incredible things in our life, in our family, in our city. And, and the problem is not that we're too ambitious. It, the problem is probably that we're ambitious in the wrong things. We, we desire to be seen in greatness rather than to make Christ known in great ways. We, we desire to lord things over other people rather than to lift up the Lord in front of other people. 
And, and this is what he's dealing with. And he begins to say, you, you know, you guys, you want to be great? That's great. This is what greatness is going to look like. If you want to be truly great, then you need to be a servant to everyone else. A, a, a pastor was talking with, with a CEO of a large corporation, and he asked him, what, what's your favorite perk as CEO? And, and he didn't even have to think about it. He just quickly rattled off. He said, it's got to be using the corporate jet. Anytime I want, anywhere I want, with anyone I want, I can make a phone call and I can fly anywhere just like that in an instant. And, and we know that. And when we think of CEOs and the things that they get to do and the bonuses that they get and all, all, all the things that, you know, the, the office that they have, all the things, the leader always tends to get all of the greatest things. Because that's what greatness looks like amongst the people of earth is that when you're in charge, you use your power for your own benefit. And Jesus begins to say, that picture of greatness, of worrying about who you're above, that's not how it's going to work. It's like, like an organizational chart. You guys have seen an org chart before for corporations. I've got one to throw up here that's just blank, but it should be, yeah, there it is. So it's like the CEO, he's at the very top, and he gets the very best stuff. He, he uses the resources to make his life as great as he possibly can, and then slowly down the chart, you, know, you have the worst jobs, you have the least amount of compensation, the least amount of benefits, and all the benefits are at the very top. And that's what leadership has looked like for thousands of years. But as Jesus taught, he said, you know what, let's take this org chart and let's flip it over. And he said, if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be the guy, if you want to be the person who is right next to the highest person in all the world, then this is what you need to do. You need to put yourself below everybody else. And this wasn't just in this one teaching. I mean, this is out throughout Scripture. This is the picture of the way a husband and a wife are supposed to work. This is the picture. You know, the husband, he is the leader of the household. So what does that mean? That means that he serves her the way that Christ served the church. That, that means that he pours his life out for her, her needs and for her benefit. To be the leader is to be the servant, and this is consistent throughout the New Testament, that if you want to be great, then you have to put yourself in this situation where you're taking care of everyone else's needs. And we know this is true in the way that we feel about other people, but for some reason it's so hard for us to live out within our own person. I mean, we know we love when we hear these stories of people who have incredible wealth and use it to do incredible things rather than just buy lavish homes. We love hearing about those things. When it comes to fathers, we don't like to hear about the fathers who are like, you know, they, they make all the kids serve them and take care of them and they don't ever do anything around the house, but they rule the house with an iron fist and we hear about those dads and we're like, man, I don't want that kind of dad. But I remember when I was newly married to Tia and she was talking about what her dad was like growing up and, and how every night he would help get them to bed and he'd like rub their back for a couple minutes and pray for them and just love on them and, and make them feel important. And, and I know, I know he loves watching football. I know he loves watching basketball. I know that there are games around. I know there's things that he could have been doing, but there was something in his heart because he was a follower of Christ that he said, rather than just do the things that I love to do, I'm going to pour my life into these people because these are my children, and this is my wife. So I'm going to serve them above myself. And that's why he's referred to as a great father amongst his children. That's why he's referred to as a loving father amongst his kids. 
That's why his daughters tried to find men that were like him. Because he poured into them. He was great because he was a servant. And you know the people that have surrounded you in your life, the people that you've cared for, the people who've impacted you in tremendous ways, they weren't the people who ruled with the iron fist, who made everyone else serve them and serve their needs. They were the people who cared for others. We've known this is true on the people who surround us, but sometimes it's hard to take it into our heart and into our mind and apply it to the way that we love other people. And so what we see as this passage continues is that, you know, Jesus, he, he identifies, he hears the struggle, but then what he does is he, he redefines greatness. And this is the second point. Jesus redefines greatness, and he doesn't say, don't try to be great. He says, be great, but be great in the way that really is what, what God says is great. Be a servant to all. He sits down with the 12, and he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant to all people. Months ago when, when I was preaching, and you know this theme comes up because it's, it's, it's throughout scripture of serving other people. And, and one of the guys in the church he, who's, you know, I, I love him, he's newer to church, and he came to me afterwards and he said, hey, because what you preached when I got home, I went and washed my wife's car. And, and it's regular for us to talk about things, and he's like, I just want you to know, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying this thing out. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I love that you did that. But don't ever think that it's like, I checked that box and it's done. <laughs> like I did it at one time. Like don't ever think that. That's not what this is. This isn't like, let, like let's have one shining moment. This is a heartbeat, worldview change. This is how I see life. That I want to do great things, but that means... I have to continue to find these opportunities to serve other people. And not just people that when I serve them, they can do something back for me. They can return the favor. Because yeah, the husband serves the wife, but the wife is also supposed to respect the husband and serve him as well. And so it goes both ways. It does go both ways. But we don't just serve and take care of people who can do something back for us. We're instructed to actually do things for people who could never repay us. Who might even not know that we served them, that we took care of them. This is the heartbeat of Jesus. This is the way that he lived. This is the way that he corrected his followers to live. When their head got twisted and they're arguing about who's going to be the king, who's going to be the one over the others, who's going to have the higher rank amongst the disciples. He said, man, you've got, you've got that twisted. You've got your idea of what greatness means wrong. Let's correct this and then pursue it. And I'd love to see you pursue it. But first we've got to correct it. So here's the roadmap. Here's how you be great. You know, none of, us, none of us says, you know, I can't wait to be in charge and incompetent. When we think, you know, when we're finding to the day where we're the leader, we're the boss, we're the loudest voice in the room, we don't dream of being the jerk in the room. We dream of being something different. But we don't wait till we're in some position of authority to start living this lifestyle. It starts with our children. It starts encouraging them to adopt this. It starts with the small things that we can do, the things that we can figure out. It, it, it's not hard. And it's actually really cool. Right now there's, some, there's interesting stuff going on in our kids' ministry as we've gone to two services. And some of the kids, like my kids that are here all day, they, they've said, hey, I want to help. And even our kids right now are, are attending one and serving one on Sundays. 
and so many other kids. There's parents of kids who their kids are saying, hey, can you start volunteering, mom, because I want to serve too. I see the other kids doing it, and I want to do it too. And I believe that one of the reasons they're drawn to that is because it's part of our design that we recognize that when I get to serve someone else, it feels incredible. When I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, when I'm helping someone else, when I'm pouring into them, there's a sense of like, this was what I was designed to do because, spoiler alert, this is what you were designed to do. Like, and from a, from a child to an adult, when we find that sweet spot where we get to serve, it feels right. And it feels like, man, I'm finally getting to the place that I'm supposed to be in the way that I live my life. It's how we approach greatness. In verse 36, he continues and he begins to paint and use this illustration of, of a child. In verse 36, it says, He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, now this, is, this is continuing that picture of, you know, welcoming a child in is welcoming in someone who doesn't have too much to say intellectually, doesn't have too much to offer as far as the workload goes. They can't really repay you for anything that you invest into them at this point in their life. But Jesus says this is a good picture when you welcome in someone like this, someone who is not great, someone who is seen almost as an annoyance. When you welcome in someone like this, you welcome in me. In the next chapter, he, he begins to take it a little step further with the children. In Mark 10, he paints that, that famous picture uh, of you have to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. And, and this picture is important because then, but especially now, I'd say that there's this part of us that, that says that we're a sinner. But there's part of us that says, ah, but I'm really not that bad of a sinner. Like, I know I've messed up some, but I, it's not really that, that big of a deal because the reality is, and this is the, I believe there's this voice in the back of some of our heads that says, I actually have a lot to offer God if I would actually, you know, give it to him. Like, he would be really lucky to have all of me. Like, there's this part of us that, that feels like God, God would be lucky to have me, and I don't, I'm not really that messed up. And, and so, you, you know, if I go to God, he should feel privileged. When re, in reality, in what Jesus is saying, and what Jesus is teaching his people to understand, is that when it comes to us going to God, we receive the kingdom of God like little children. That, that we have nothing to offer, that we come in and, and we are sinful and we are broken, and, and we have to be cared for, and we have to be provided for, and we have to be loved, and we have to be protected. And we don't have anything to offer him, but he receives us. And so this is how we receive other people. This is how the invitation is given. The invitation isn't given, you know, get yourself together, have something to offer, and then come to God, and then receive the kingdom of God. But the invitation is given, come as children. And I want to clarify, too, because some people hear that, and they say, we need to come as children. You know, children don't understand, and so we just have to check out in our mind. That's not what it's teaching. Jesus encouraged people to find answers for their doubts. When Thomas was doubting, he said, put your fingers in the holes and feel and have the evidence and have your doubts be answered. It's okay to, ha to ask questions. Coming to God as a child isn't checking out mentally. Coming to God as a child is realizing we had nothing to offer him, but yet he invites us, he accepts us, and he receives us. 
And when we welcome someone into this, this community, into this church, when we invite someone to come and know Christ, when they, when it, they seemingly have nothing to offer, or if, or if in our mind we're like, oh, they could do great things if they became a Christian, if they came to the church, that shouldn't even be in our mind. The invitation is given because we can't see all that God is going to do in someone's life. We may not be able to see how God is going to use them or what God's going to do with their life or their resources. We don't worry about that. We don't worry about what they can offer to us or to the church if they get here. We just worry about extending that invitation to come and know. Many of us, we, we pretend to believe that we are sinners and consequently, all we can do is pretend to believe that we have been forgiven. As a result, our whole spiritual life becomes this pseudo-repentance and pseudo-bliss. That's how um, Brendan Manning said it. I'm going to read that one more time. Many of us pretend to believe we are sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend to believe that we have been forgiven. If there's been a sense in you that says, you know, God is, God is lucky to have me. You know, God does love you genuinely, authentically, purely more than any other love you've ever known but we have nothing to offer him it is only by grace that we have been saved not through work so that none can boast we come to him as little children band if you guys will go ahead and start making your way up to the stage i'm going to begin to close this out the way that we think about how we approach god it matters because it affects kind of how we choose God. And, and I'm going to begin to, to wrap this up just with these three chairs, which is something that might be familiar to some of you guys, but this is going to be a little different. Some of us in our relationship with God, the reason that we choose God is just purely because there's part of us that, that in our conscience, we say, I know that he's there. And so I choose him because I feel a little bit guilty when things happen, when I make bad choices. And so my relationship to God, the reason that I choose him is because I have a little bit of, of guilt about those things. And so I, I try to throw a little money in the plate. Um, but if my conscience isn't bothering me, then God's not bothering me. And so I'll just go through my life. And so my connection with God is connected to my conscience. And quite honestly, my conscience doesn't bother me too much. So my connection is loose. And when God starts to push and speak to my heart, I've got walls up, um, I'm not, I'm not going to go too far. I'm only going to go as far as my guilt drives me for a little while. And if your faith has been like this, you've just been trying to settle the guilt down, get back to life. Guilt comes back up, settle it down, get back to life. God has more for you than this just conscious-based connection. Kind of one of the next chairs It is, you know, community like I, I know the people who go to the church and you know I want a chair that's kind of like the other chair that they sit in I want it to be similar um, because I don't want to stand out and if I have friends who go to church I'll go to church but if I don't have friends who go to church uh, I'm not and if and in my comfort level it's really connected to my comfort level I want to be comfortable and, and I want to get what I want out of church and God is going to play by my rules in this and this is my connection to God as long as God doesn't disrupt my comfort too much, we'll stay connected. And, and if you're, you're connecting to God because you wanna keep your comfort level high, 
it's going to get weird because what 1 Peter 5.10 actually promises is it says, you know, that he's graceful and he's drawing us towards eternal glory in Christ. But then it says, after you have suffered a little while, he himself will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The promise in that passage is unfortunate because it says, after you have suffered for a little while. God doesn't protect us from all suffering on earth, but what he promises is his presence through it. And if we've just been connecting with God and our relationship with God has been you know, dictated by comfort and community, I can tell you God has something a little bit more for you than that. Is it easier? Is it more comfortable? No. Is it better? Yes. The last chair is, isn't really as comfortable, but it is better. So choosing God because we want to settle our conscience down, because we want comfort, or are we choosing God because of commitment? Because we've seen his character and who he is when we've seen who he is, we can't help but say, you're God. You're amazing. And so I can't help but listen to what you say. I can't help but love you because I've seen who you are and how you are. And so I'm committed. When I mess up, I'm still committed to you. When other people around me mess up, I'm committed to you. When a person who I looked up to messes up, I'm committed to you. When I'm, when I'm no longer comfortable and, and I'm scared of what's gonna happen, I'm committed to you. When I lose someone that I loved, I'm committed to you. When I don't have the things that I want to have, I'm committed to you. When you call me to leave the relationship that I know is wrong, I am committed to you. When my future looks uncertain, I am committed to you. When you ask me to do something and I feel embarrassed and scared, I am committed to you. When my heart is breaking because I know people around me don't have you and they need you, I am committed to you. And so if I'm known as someone who speaks your name and I'm criticized for that, I am committed to you. And this is the place that I want you to get to because here's what you have when you sit in the chair where you say, my, my life is connected to God because I'm committed to who he is. So many other things we can lose. We can lose our peace and our conscience when we're trying to keep things balanced. We can lose our comfort, but when we have his presence, that can never be taken away. And when that's your foundation for the way that you live, no matter what storms come, you'll know you'll be able to stand. So why do you choose God today? Why did you sit in the chair in church today? Is it because something dragged you here? Because you came to see a friend? Be because you want to reduce the guilt? And no matter why you came here, I'm so glad that you did, but I so want for you this knowledge and this love and this grace that only comes from a personal relationship for, with God. I want you to possess this as your own. Because when you have it, you have peace and you have joy and you have love and you have purpose that nothing else can give. But you have to decide to choose God. You have to decide why you choose God. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we repent of the times and the seasons and our heart turns away from these times where we've set the rules 
where we've set the guidelines, where we've walked to you as though we're the CEO and we've put our demands of the way it's going to be on the table, we repent of those times. And we look at you for all that you are in your glory, in your strength, in your majesty, seated in your throne within heaven. And we fall to our knees before you and we say, we are yours. Whatever you ask of us, we will do. We come to you as children with nothing to offer, knowing that we're received by a perfect heavenly Father. Jesus, thank you for hearing our struggles. Thank you for redefining greatness and thank you that you redefined our worth. We will live as you command. In Jesus' name.